Thank you, worship team, for leading us through those songs. I was thinking as we were singing that uh, Easter morning's a dangerous morning to sing because you can lose your voice by song number four very easily. So, Well, Hope Fellowship, he is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. On Friday, we took time to remember the death of Jesus, the Son of God, during our Good Friday service. We looked at what Jesus accomplished for his followers on the cross and what it means for us as Christians when Jesus says that it is finished. That the payment for our sins, the separation from God, and our fear of God's punishment from sin are all finished on the cross. But today we get to celebrate the day when Jesus was raised from the dead. It's perhaps the most joyous day on the calendar for those who are Christians. And we get to celebrate that today, celebrate the resurrection, that Jesus is not dead anymore, but he is alive today. So we're going to read our passage today from John chapter 20. We're taking a break from 1 Peter uh, to read the resurrection story from John chapter 20 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to John chapter 20. We're going to read that this morning, but today we're going we're gonna to break up our reading into two parts. So we're going to start reading verses 1 to 10. And then we'll move on to reading verses 11 to 18 later on this morning. So I invite you to follow along as I read. John 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You can tell as we're reading this that John's giving the account of an eyewitness here. You can imagine from his description what it might have been like for Mary as she was going to the tomb that morning. It was still dark, but when she got there, there was just enough light to tell that something was off. I imagine there were so many emotions that she was experiencing as she went on that walk to the tomb. Grief, I'm sure. Expect she was doing that awful, bittersweet walk down memories with the man who had healed her by driving the demons out of her when they first met. But all those thoughts would have been crowded out in a flash when she noticed that the stone was in the wrong place. The stone had been rolled out of the face of the tomb. Someone had taken the body. Maybe it was robbers who wanted the linens that he was wrapped in. Maybe the Jews came and moved him for some strange reason. It didn't really matter, but this was the final injustice, even after they had treated him so horribly. 
They couldn't even leave his body alone. So she runs back to the disciples because there's really no one else she can tell. The Jews probably want her dead too. The Romans won't care. So the only people she can tell are the others who also loved Jesus. And then Peter and John, after they hear the news, they sprint in this mad foot race back to the tomb. John's younger, so it's probably why he wins. Peter's not far behind him. And poor Peter, he, who knows what he was thinking he was going to do when he got to the tomb. He was likely racked with guilt from his memories of a few nights before when he had seen his friend hanging on a cross and he had denied him three times right after he had said that he would never leave Jesus. I imagine that guilt transformed into anger and carried him quickly to the tomb. This time he was too late to defend his teacher and his friend, but this time he wouldn't be afraid. Peter gets to the tomb, he sees the stone is missing, the guards are unconscious. If these were robbers, they were serious. John's still standing outside the tomb, maybe he's afraid, maybe it's out of respect for the dead, we don't know. But Peter's got no such scruples, he jumps right into the house of the dead. And what they see, as John follows him in, what they see makes no sense. The linens are still there, but the body is missing. Why would anybody, Jews or robbers, take the body but leave the only really valuable thing there? Or so they thought. And John's heart probably started beating faster at this point. What if Jesus is alive? Verse 9 caps it off saying that Peter and John still didn't quite get it. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, John records later, he must rise from the dead. And what Peter and John didn't understand was that Scripture had anticipated this moment from the very, very beginning. On Friday, we looked at how the seeds of our need for Jesus to die on the cross began back in the first pages of Genesis. We're going to go back there again this morning. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, which God had told them expressly not to eat, sin entered the world at that moment. And sin brought its horrible, unnatural sentence of death for every human being born on earth. So from the beginning, Adam and Eve knew that their world that had good work for them to do, their world of good food, their world of good, pure relationships with each other, and a good, pure relationship with God, they knew that that good world had had an enemy enter into it. And that enemy was death. And in Genesis 3.15, God promised them that someone would come eventually to defeat the enemy when he said this to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, someone was coming that was going to undo what the serpent had done. Someone was coming that was going to crush evil and defeat death. But if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you know that there is this constant refrain that follows each person all throughout the book. It goes like this. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. It's death's drumbeat. And it beats over and over again all through the pages of Scripture. And with each drumbeat, that promise of someone coming to crush evil, 
seems a little bit more distant. Now there's a couple glimmers of hope as we go through the Old Testament. A man named Enoch, he doesn't die per se. His life ends by God bringing him up into heaven. That doesn't fix the problem for the rest of us. Elijah, a prophet, raises a young boy back to life. But that boy dies again. And Elijah can't do that for everyone. And so the drumbeat continues. King David writes himself in Psalm 16. He says this, speaking to God. You will not abandon my soul to shale or to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. And that seems like he's talking about death being overcome in some, some way, but then David dies. One of the prophets, Ezekiel, sees this vision of all these dry bones, this valley of dry bones, and he's told to prophesy over them. They come back to life. Now that's an interesting one. That seems like it might have some application to more people. Maybe a future resurrection. But then people keep dying. The drumbeat continues. And then Jesus comes. And he talks about future resurrection with certainty. He heals people. He can even raise people from the dead. And so maybe this is the Holy One that David was talking about. This is the Holy One that would not see corruption, wouldn't see death. Maybe he's the Messiah who will finally defeat the enemy. But then Jesus dies too. And that drumbeat continues. When I was in college, I took a semester in a cadaver lab. If you've ever been in the presence of a dead body, you know that there's something inside of you that has this initial reaction against it. Something that warns you that this is unnatural. Maybe there's something even dangerous about it. You want to get away from its presence. And the reason is because you are seeing another image bearer who has had their soul ripped out of them, ripped out of their body by the enemy, death. And if you knew that person, or if you loved that person, or if that person loved you, then you know the horror of the fall, the horror of sin and the grotesque methods of the enemy death. I can't imagine how the disciples and the women felt on Good Friday as they watched Jesus slowly succumb to the enemy. But what they still didn't understand was that for God to save humans, God himself had to become a human. For God to redeem us from sin, Jesus himself had to become sin. And for God to defeat death, Jesus had to go into death itself and allow himself to be taken by the enemy. He had to die. So that when the Father raised him from the dead, the power of death would be defeated. The enemy would be defeated. This is what John means when he says that Jesus must rise from the dead. God was not going to allow death to reign forever like he promised to Adam and Eve and through the Psalms and through the prophets that the Messiah was going to defeat death and that there would be a promise of resurrection life for any who puts their faith in God. If Jesus was going to defeat death, then he had to rise from the dead. He must rise from the dead. And that is what he did. 
So on that still morning in the garden, the empty tomb, that empty tomb meant that the terror of death's drumbeat was gone. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, and that means that the enemy was finally defeated. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, and because he's alive right now, death wasn't just defeated for Jesus too. It was defeated for any who put their trust in him. Now at this point, it would be a reasonable question to ask, how can you say the enemy death is defeated if people are still dying? A lot of Christians and a lot of people have died over the past 2,000 years. And the answer is that for followers of Jesus, death is defeated because the permanence of death has been erased. Because when we follow Christ, we are we're united to him so closely that what is true about his life will become true of our lives as well. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the joy of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very long chapter, but I want to read just a few verses from that for us. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Do you see that there? The dead will be raised imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. The New Living Translation says it like this. Our dying bodies will be transformed into bodies that will never die. It's not death that is the final experience for the Christian. Death isn't the last thing that we experience. Life is the last and final and eternal experience for those who have put their trust in Jesus. And although death can operate a little while longer, it is not yet destroyed. The final victory is coming. And when that day comes, all of us, when all of us who are united with Christ are raised from the dead, then that's the day that death won't just be defeated, it will be destroyed. No one who knows the king will ever die again. The day is coming when all enemies will be put under Jesus' feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. So this is how Paul can say that death is swallowed up in victory. The empty tomb means that the enemy death is defeated. For God to defeat death, Jesus had to be raised from the dead. And he is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. (laughs) Sorry, I snuck that one in. But there's more to this story, and so I want to keep reading. John chapter 20. Let's read the end of John's story in front of the tomb. John 20, 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. After the whirlwind, that was Peter and John at the tomb. John leaves us with Mary Magdalene still standing outside the tomb in tears. The man who had healed her, who had given her love and forgiveness, the man who had shown her God, he wasn't there. The last time she had seen him, he had been covered in his own blood, beaten and stripped, hanging on that awful cross like a common thief. And now she thought a common thief had taken his body. Through her tears, she makes out two men sitting in the tomb. They ask her a question. She sees another man standing outside the tomb. She's crying too hard to see him very well. And she, he asks her who she's looking for. Her grief is stronger than her embarrassment. So she asks in desperation, hopes maybe this man knows where Jesus' body was taken. Do you know where they've taken him? And he says to her one word, one word that causes her heart to stop and fills her with shock. That would never be fully describable, although I'm sure she would tell this story many, many times the rest of her life. He says her name, Mary. And she knows that he is alive. I love the way that John has chosen to include certain details that he did here in these verses. He describes Mary's posture as she's trying to stoop in to see the tomb, what it is that Peter and John had just seen. He describes the way that she receives this question of why she's crying twice before she realizes it's a subtle invitation into the joy that she was about to experience. And he describes the way that Jesus speaks to her tenderly and how he reveals himself by saying her name, Mary. And she knows immediately that this is Jesus. Now, earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this about himself as the shepherd of his flock. The sheep hear his voice. This is Jesus' voice. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out, all his own, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I find this so remarkable because I think what John is trying to draw out for us is that the king who just fulfilled all of scripture, he just defeated humanity's greatest enemy, death. 
He has stayed outside the tomb because he loves Mary. This is such a poignant picture of the nature of our Savior. The mighty king, who was just raised from the dead, cares about Mary as she cries outside the empty tomb. The power and the might of our king doesn't leave him aloof or distant or inaccessible. He calls Mary's name and she knows his voice. When I was in college, the president of the college loved playing basketball. He actually joined my intramural basketball team for a semester, which was an honor. And he was actually pretty good, so it was helpful. One of the things I remember was this feeling when you'd walk around campus and I would see him, because we were on the same team, he knew who I was. So he would actually call out my name and ask how I was doing. I'm curious if you've ever had anyone do that to you, someone who's in a position of honor who knows your name and calls you by name. This does some interesting things to a human being. It gives you a sense of dignity. It gives you an instant sense of worth and of being known. The king of the universe knows your name. Now it's important to be really careful when and how we insert ourselves into biblical stories. You have to do that very carefully. But I think in this case it's justified because of John chapter 10. Jesus knows and calls the name of his sheep, which means that if you are one of his sheep, if you follow him, he knows your voice, you know his voice, he knows your name, and he loves you like he loved Mary. I think there's something very powerful about picturing Jesus calling you by your name and inviting you to know and experience the joy that he had already won when he was raised from the dead. And that joy is not just that you follow the risen king. It means that you can know with certainty, if you are a Christian, that your sins are forgiven. The resurrection proves Jesus' words, that he wasn't just another interesting teacher who was good with words. What he said was true. That if you repent of your sins and follow him, you'll be saved. The resurrection also means that you too will one day stand perhaps outside your grave or your urn or wherever your body goes after you die. Your vocal cords will be able to call the name of people. You'll be able to stand on your feet again because Jesus has promised that his followers would be raised like him. And the resurrection also means that you are now adopted into the king's family. Now we know from Matthew's account of this same moment outside the tomb that Mary was with some other women. They all grabbed onto Jesus' feet, clinging to him, as John says in verse 17. Now, I can only imagine what it's like to be reunited with someone that you love after a long time if you thought they had died. I expect that there'd be this irrational feeling that you have to hang on to them in case they are somehow taken away from you again. And I expect that was the feeling for Mary and the other women who were with them or who were with her. And Jesus knows this, and so he comforts them. He asks them to let go of his feet. All this is in verse 17. And he reminds them that he has not yet left for heaven. He's still here. But he is going to ascend to the Father soon. So then he gives them perhaps the most joyous mission that any follower of Jesus has ever received. Go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. Now, if you've got a Bible, I want you to look down at verse 17 with me. 
And take a look at Jesus' words here. As we mentioned, he asks the women to, to let go of his feet. He reassures them he hasn't left yet to ascend into heaven. He is going to leave, so the disciples need to know. But there's something else I want us to see in these verses. Do you see how it is that he talks about God the Father? Look at the phrase that he uses here. He says, tell the brothers that I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. You see that? My God and your God. In other words, Jesus has brought his followers into the family of God. Through the resurrection, because we are united to Jesus, we are now also sons and daughters of the Most High God. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is so extraordinary. Because Jesus is alive right now, and he's united us to him, we are part of God's family too. So we get to share in the blessings of the family of God, which means, if you're a Christian, Christ's righteousness is yours. If you're a Christian, the love of God is yours. If you're a Christian, the promise of eternal life in a resurrected body is yours. And all of this was won for us that morning when God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if you're sitting here in this room this morning and you can't say with confidence that you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, you've never claimed that he's your Lord, I hope that you can see what it is that Jesus is inviting you into. In him, there is forgiveness for sins. In him, there is freedom from the fear of death. And in him, there is an invitation to become one of his beloved sheep who is part of God's family. Hope Fellowship, we follow a risen Savior. We follow the man, Jesus, who is God. He is a king who is humble enough to become like us and take on human flesh. He is a king who's strong enough to take the death that you ought to have died because you are a sinner. And he is a king who is powerful enough to defeat the greatest enemy humanity has ever known. And he chose willingly to enter death so that he could defeat it. And he now is alive. And that powerful king, Jesus, knows you by name. And loves you enough to make you part of his family. I have no doubt that no one who is at the tomb that morning will ever forget what it is that they witnessed that day. How could they? They had met their Savior. The tomb was empty. And Jesus was risen. He's alive. Oh, fellowship, he is risen. risen. Indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Angels roll the rock away. Death yield up its mighty prey. See, he rises from the tomb, glowing with immortal bloom. Hallelujah. Jesus, we rejoice this morning that you are alive, that the tomb is empty, and that death is defeated, that you have called your children by name to be part of your family. 
You are truly a great Savior and friend and King. We ask that you would give us the gift of hearts that grasp the importance of the empty tomb and hearts that cling to the hope of our future resurrection. You are our King, Lord Jesus, and we could ask for no better. In your name we praise you and thank you. Amen.